Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. All right. Thanks for joining us for episode 254. This is a interview with Larry Roberts, the owner of Red Hat Media, which is a podcasting company. A couple things that I think would be really interesting to listen out for would be the very first thing that we kind of talk about, which is a transition from being a karate black belt and uh, a uh, teacher to being a trainer. It's really interesting to hear about how Larry's background in martial arts might have uh, helped him and what the skills were there that, that really aided in that. I would say maybe there's some like overall things to listen for too, like the some themes on, on the power of communication. How did uh, effective communication skills really help Larry's career overall? And then finally, uh, Larry's interest in teaching. You know, what insights did Larry gain from his experiences in martial arts and being an instructor? So uh, without further ado, episode 254, part one of our discussion with Larry Roberts. Larry Roberts, thanks for joining us on the Nerd Journey podcast. What's happening? Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Great to have you here. Hey, can you tell us a little bit about what it is that you do today? Yeah, today is Saturday. So typically I do real work on Saturdays because I spend Monday through Friday doing podcasts and interviews and speaking engagements and client calls and all that fun stuff. So as a budding entrepreneur, this is the time where we get real work done generally. But I don't think that's really what you were asking. I think you were asking, what does Red Hat Media do? and what, what does Larry Roberts do? Again, my name is Larry Roberts. I am the founder of Red Hat Media. And here at Red Hat Media, we focus on three things. We focus on podcasting. We focus on building better brands through podcasting. And we focus on building better podcasts by leveraging AI tools. So that's opened up a variety of different opportunities for me to speak on stage. I do a lot of uh, traveling. I do a lot of stage appearances. I do a lot of keynote speaking from organizations anywhere from podcast companies like, like PodFest, Podcast Movement, or some of the smaller, some of my favorite ones are some of the smaller ones, Outlier Podcast Festivals, amazing, to other organizations like Entrepreneurs Organization or EO. And as of late, recently, I've been consulting and, and been speaking on stage here throughout the state of Texas for the Texas State School Board talking about AI and the effects of AI on, on education from both the teacher's perspective and the student's perspective. So it's been a busy, busy year, but that's kind of a high-level overview of exactly what I do here with, uh, with Red Hat Media. Very cool. Can we back up a little bit and maybe talk about your entry into 
the business world? Was it through a technology lens? Was it through an audio lens? Was it through maybe a little bit more of a standard role? I, I had a corporate career up until t- January 4th of 2021. So I was typically, I say always, wasn't even really always because back in my 20s, uh, maybe even up into my early 30s, I was a karate guy and fighting was life. That was everything to me. I had my own school for a while. Uh, that was probably my first business venture that failed miserably. Just as an FYI, if you want to start a family karate school, don't do it in a warehouse that doesn't have air conditioning or heat. That doesn't work out very well. But I had these grand delusions that uh, I was still going to be a successful karate teacher, even though we're starting off in a warehouse. It didn't work out, but it was still fun. Up until that point, I really hadn't had much of a quote-unquote professional career. I did come right out of high school. I do not have a college degree. I've got six whopping credit hours to my name. Uh, And I came right out of high school and started selling cars. And I sold cars for four and a half, five years. Did fairly well there, but at the same time, always wanted to be that karate guy. And that was always the distraction to where I eventually uh, stopped selling cars and and did martial arts full-time. So did that for a long, long time. Then realized that I wasn't going to make it to the UFC. So once I had that realization, I was like, oh, I don't really know what I'm going to do here. So I got to get a real job. And that's where I started working at Texas Instruments. Um, I started at TI on the, uh, it's what they call a clean line. I don't know if you've ever seen the IBM commercials where there's people in like basically ninja suits, different colored ninja suits. It's like Intel inside. That, I think Intel is the biggest one. I worked in a clean room. And I wore a ninja suit every day to work. So that was kind of cool. But it was also cool because I still got to train in karate because at TI, we got to work 12-hour shifts. And we'd work one week, we work three days, we get four days off. The next week, we work four days, we get three days off. So it's really almost like a part-time job, but you're putting in 12 hours a day, which is perfectly fine with me because I still got a lot of playtime and I do love to play. But as my career evolved at TI, I moved from the manufacturing or the, the clean line area uh, I moved into a corporate training position. So that started opening up some professional opportunities for me. So I did that role for a couple of years and then leveraged that position to find a training management position. My goal was, I'm from Sherman Denison, which is at the far north end of Texas, right on the border of Texas and Oklahoma. And TI had a plant up there, but my goal was to get down to Dallas. I wanted to live in the big city. So I leveraged that training, uh, that corporate trainer position at TI to get a training management position at a suburb of Dallas called Capel. Now that was supposed to be a two-year little stint just to get some bigger, uh, some more experience at a managerial level before I really jumped and got to move downtown to actual Dallas and get my little penthouse condo and all that fun stuff. Well, that two-year pit stop turned into a 21-year career. And it went from, man, I, I wore so many hats over those 21 years, but starting off as the training manager in their distribution center, I came in, implemented policies and procedures from every aspect of a warehouse or a DC, uh, reduced their turnover from about 400 plus percent down to a little over 100 percent per season. Still a seasonal business. It was an air conditioning uh, business, so it was still very seasonal. So we constantly had turnover, but without proper training, people would show up one day for work and then they're just gone the next. So once we started implementing some policies and procedures and really trained people how to do their jobs, we started seeing where they would hang around. After about a year and a half of that, the company, it's a global company. They were founded, I believe it was in 1915. They have facilities all across the globe. But the problem with that was they also had operating systems that were different at every facility. 
So they realized they needed to have some consistency uh, because of this era that we're entering into where we need to be able to see each other's inventory levels and sales levels and all that fun stuff. They needed to implement what is called an ERP system or an enterprise resource planning system, uh, which at the time we went with a system called JD Edwards. And uh, they came down and recruited me out of the warehouse to be the training lead for the core team of the JD Edwards implementation team. And that little project lasted about I don't know, 16, 17 years. Through that time, I went from being the training guy and because I was training everybody from er in every facet of every company that we had, I got to know the data really, really well. So I became somewhat of a J.D. Edwards database expert. And that led me into reporting. That led me into business intelligence. That gave me my first introduction to AI and a variety of other aspects of IT. I did a little I say I did a little, I tried a little coding, never was much of a programmer, but uh, I did go beyond hello world in my programming efforts, but not far beyond that. But uh, got pretty proficient with SQL, that sort of thing. So uh, when I left my corporate career in January 4th of 2021, I was a business intelligence analyst. That's where I left my corporate gig. But podcasting started it back for me in 2014. I'm fascinated to hear about that podcasting jump, but I, I almost want to rewind all the way back to working on the clean room line okay. to the training position. What did that jump look like? Because I just imagined that you were one of like, you know, potentially hundreds of people, you know, on that clean room line. So what was it about you and your aspirations that made you the one that uh, would be recruited for, or, you know, when you applied to actually successfully get that job? Yeah, I was not recruited. It was a job posting that was open to everybody there at, at that uh, branch of TI. And I think a lot of it was attributed to the fact that I was already a effective communicator. I, I'd already had a sales career that was very successful. So I was used to carrying on conversations. I was used to understanding body language and understanding whether or not someone is receiving the message that I'm giving and being able to adjust my approach to having that conversation with that individual to a point that I could you know, sell them a $20,000, $50,000 car. So having that ability to communicate, having that sales training behind me, and the fact coupled with that I was already involved in, in martial arts and karate, obviously, and as for one of the schools that I taught for, which is where I ended up with my, my final, was called America's Best. It's in, up in Sherman. It's owned by a gentleman by the name of Rick Arnold. And he's still one of my favorite people and mentors today. But he required that every instructor go to Toastmasters. And if you're not familiar with Toastmasters, it's a speaking organization that helps you hone your speaking skills. And the, the Toastmasters branch back home in Sherman, man, they were brutal. <laughs> they, they would devastate you if you, when you were giving a speech, if you, what they called, had grammatical grunts in your, in your talks. And we, we try to avoid this in the podcast space too. What do we hate? We hate ums, we hate you knows, we hate all the filler words, but they called those grammatical grunts. So, and it's funny because every time you would give a talk at Toastmasters, if you had a grammatical grunt, everybody in the room, and this was a big group, there's probably 20 to 30 people in the group. Everybody had one of those doorman bells that if you, you hit it, it goes ding. And if you had a grammatical grunt in your speech, everybody in the room slams their doorman bell. So it's like ding, 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 ding. So you know that you've made a mistake when you're speaking. So it's like playing taboo. It was super rough, man, especially considering, you know, what was I, 2021, 20, something like that, you know? So it was super, super rough at the time. 
But I think that really was one of the major contributing factors to me getting that position was having that ability to communicate probably on a more succinct level than some of the other candidates that were there. It was also, if we're going to be honest, I, I had a couple of people that were already in the corporate training field there at TI. So I had already built some relationships around that. So maybe some of the old good old boy system kicked in a little bit. But uh, again, I, I attribute the vast majority of it to my ability to communicate probably more succinctly than some of the other candidates at the time. Go back to Toastmasters for a second. When you're in that room and people are hitting this bell, does that act as a discouraging mechanism? Like just overall, oh man, I can't do this. Or is it actually encouraging? I'm really curious how people take that approach when you're up there speaking. Because we've talked to other guests who have said, you know, if you go to a a user group or whatever, people want you to succeed. So I guess for someone who's never done Toastmasters, how does this impact you mentally and your decision to keep doing it? Well, one, I want to say that I don't know they do that at every Toastmasters group. That's the only place I've ever heard of it. Sure. So, but they did it at ours. And I think it really just depends on the individual. For me personally, it was nerve wracking. But also at the time I had sort of that, and this sounds so cheesy, but that black belt mentality where negative reinforcement makes you better. So for me, it definitely acted as a motivator and brought it to my attention. But don't get me wrong, it it messed up several of my talks. There were opportunities where I just got completely flustered and felt like sitting down and getting away from the podium at the time. But it was also, the group itself was overall extremely supportive. No one was there to embarrass anybody. No one was there to make demean anybody or make them feel less of a speaker than anybody else. And we had people in that group like me that had no professional experience all the way up to the dean of the local community college there at Grayson County College. So we had proficient speakers all the way down to completely inexperienced speakers in the room. I don't think from their perspective, it was any, any way to embarrass or demean or, or, or discourage you from doing a good job. It's just really going, hey, this is something we don't want you doing. So we want to make sure we draw attention to the fact that you slipped up there. Let's keep that in mind moving forward. So I think it was intended to be supportive. And for me personally, again, nerve wracking is all get out, but it was also very, very supportive. And you, you laugh about it afterwards, especially when the whole room is erupting in bells. It's somewhat comical. I would push back a little bit and say it's difficult to say nobody's there to, to embarrass anybody when you have a whole room full of bells going off at the same time. <laughs> I think my experience with Toastmasters is it's very typical to have somebody who's there timing your speech and then somebody who's there specifically to tell you how many times you had a pause word in your speech or, or what your group is calling grammatical grunts. Yeah. It's fascinating to hear this background. We have, I would say, a lot of people who listen to us who are at that initial stage like they're in the entry level and they don't know how to break out from the absolute bottom of the of the pyramid to that next level right and what you've talked about there is fascinating you've you talked about bringing previous training that you've had so previous experience in unrelated fields but still having you know kind of that cross uh genre skill in communication in assessing body language and then being in a situation where you were tasked to be an instructor 
but then being sent for specific training at the communication part. So if you're going to a group to like deliver a speech, for example, like a local user group and a technology user group, and that group was dinging you every time you had a pause word, that would be extremely disruptive. But you're going to Toastmasters for specific training. You were asking them to give you feedback on these specific parts, on this specific skill. So just as if like maybe if you were going to a, a user group and somebody threw a punch at you, that's out of context, right? Like, but if you go to a karate training school and somebody does that, that's absolutely in context. So um, it makes a lot of sense. When you're going to Toastmasters, you're specifically asking for feedback on that effective communication, on those pause words, the gra grammatical grunts. I, I like that. That's a alliterative. So it, it sticks. Yeah, it stuck with me. I mean, it's been 30 years since I was in that Toastmasters group and still to this day, Everything that I learned there has stuck with me that whole time. So it was very, they did a good job in reinforcing the message that they were delivering. I mean, I've, I've forgotten a lot over the last 30 years, but not that. <laughs> <laughs> and how long were you in the, in the group and going consistently to work with them? Do you remember? I'd say I was probably there about a year, maybe a year and a half, something like that. Yeah, that's a good stint. So a formative year. Yeah, very formative year. And, and so much so that, you know, if I'm going to brag a little bit, I did go head to head with the dean of the local community college, and I still have the blue ribbon where I beat him. So <laughs> it's actually in, nice. there in my dresser still to this day. So it was it definitely uh, that was fun. That's awesome. He was deaning all day and you were getting to teach, right? There you go. Yeah. So. <laughs> Let's talk about that. What did the interest in teaching come from the interest in martial arts? The other way around, did it come from what you were doing as a salesperson or some other direction influence? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. You know, even in high school, I remember back to where we would have student teacher day, where we would swap roles. And even back then, and we started doing this in my junior year, and we did it my junior and senior year, I was always selected as a student teacher. So it's almost like I've just had this, I don't know, maybe it's an inherent ability to communicate in a way, regardless of the topic, regardless of how complex the topic may be, I've always been able to break it down in a way that really anybody can understand it. And I, I have seen over the years that I can be an effective communicator, whether it's with someone that is highly skilled in the subject matter or someone that's just being introduced to the subject matter. So I don't know if it's just the way that I communicate or the way that I'm able to break things down. I, I don't have any real hard facts or data to reinforce my opinion here, but it's just something that I've always been able to do. It's something that I've always enjoyed. It's a little, I mean, it's fulfilling, not a little fulfilling, but it's, it's also somewhat, I don't know, justifying. It makes me feel like I belong or that I have a purpose when I'm able to disseminate information and I see those light bulbs come on. And, and it's just, it's, it just, it's one of the most fulfilling things that I do is to be able to see people go, oh, I, I get that. Oh, uh, NFT is this. Oh, uh, now I know what an NFT is. Don't get me talking about NFT because I'm not that proficient in that topic. But I always like to take it back to what I call the mom test. If I can describe something, regardless of what it is, in a way that my mom would go, oh, I see what you're saying, Larry. Oh, I understand that. If I can break it down to a point that it passes the mom test, then I think that's effective communication. 
I really like that self-realization, I think, and the reflection to say, oh, that is something that I find enjoyable. Not everybody gets that enjoyment out of it. So I have a bias here, and I'll, I'll state it up front, that teaching a skill helps to cement that skill. So when you were a martial arts instructor, did you find that teaching the skills helped you complete the skills and cement them within your own mind? Oh, 100%. I think it goes way beyond just martial arts. But like you're saying, I agree with you completely. Doing something and teaching something, when you're teaching it, it exposes some of the details that you may not have grasped initially when you quote unquote learned it. You know, going through emotion is one thing, but understanding how this motion or this technique or whatever it may be impacts others and the way that it impacts those individuals gives you an entirely different perspective on accomplishing whatever that task may be. Throwing a, a sidekick is a very technical action. So there, there are certain techniques. Knee needs to come out, need to level it out. It needs to shoot straight out. You need to hit with the heel. You want to try to point your toes to the ground, all this fun stuff. Your base foot wants to pivot so you can get your hips in there and get the power. And once you figure out and they go, okay, cool, you've got that technique down. Once you start teaching that, you see other people that, they don't move like you do. They don't have body types like you do. They don't have the flexibility that you have, or maybe they have more flexibility than you have. Maybe they're more athletic. I mean, I was a karate guy, but I'm definitely not an athlete. And, and that was always a struggle. But when I, I was able to work with these kids that were true athletes and they just take to it like a duck to water, it's like, wow, their body mechanics, they do this. So it gives you more insight into the details of how they can accomplish it. But when you have somebody that is even less of an athlete potentially than you are, and they're struggling just with standing on one foot, you have to find new ways to convey that message. And as you learn to convey that message in different ways, you learn the intricacies of whatever it is that you're teaching. Sure, I used a sidekick as an example there, but it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's writing code. One of the things that always got me was people tend to teach directly. So you need to declare a variable, you can call that variable in the code, blah, blah. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. So over the years, I learned that there's a lot more value in teaching at a conceptual level and at an application level than as a step-by-step, -step, here's how you do it. Because if you follow step-by-step -step and you don't get those same results, you don't even understand what you're really trying to do. Am I making any sense here? I think I'm on a tangent. I mean, it speaks to me directly. I think when I was in college, like the professor of the introductory programming class only ever used uh, pseudocode. He never used okay. an actual language. That was the, the technique that they used. The, so the actual ins and outs of a specific language were left to the individual people to pick up. And, and the, the affect was, well, you can you know, read a, a language book and you know, use a reference and look up what it is that you're supposed to write. But unless you understand the concept of a loop or of a, of a logic test, you know, you're not going to be able to do any of these things. You're not going to, you know, the, the actual programming comes from the, the logic. Right. 100%. And, and, and to go back to the, the Mars Swartz thing, you know, before I went to Rick Arnold, I was already a black belt. I think I had two black belts, actually, in two different styles. But I didn't know how to fight. And I went to his school, and the very first night I was there, I trained with his fight team and got knocked out. He just flapped, gone, sleeping. And it's because... I knew the techniques, I knew how to throw this, but I didn't understand the concept of fighting. 
I didn't understand timing. I didn't understand distance. I didn't understand rhythm. I didn't understand footwork. I didn't understand reading. I didn't understand picking up reads and adjusting my approach to the individual that I was sparring with. So I got wrecked on the reg until I started understanding the concepts of fighting. Started understanding now I know how to mechanically throw this punch, but how do I make that land? And you have to understand the concepts and the overreaching uh, uh, approach to making that punch, not just mechanically right, but timed right, distanced right. All the techniques and the concepts that come into play there, that's what makes all the difference in the world. And that's what used to frustrate me because I would see all these black belts and they'd get beat up. And I'm like, oh, even today, you, you see a black belt, you don't nearly have as, as much respect that today with a karate black belt as you did 20 years ago. It's just not the same because they pump them out in three years. The analogy that I would make is like, if again, if you're learning a, a programming language, it's knowing all the syntax, but not knowing how to design an application. How do I apply it? You know, what's an array? Where, how do I use an array? I mean, same thing. You said you mentioned a loop. Yeah. I mean, how, how do you apply a loop? Okay. I understand what it is, but how does that work functionally? How do I build that into a, an application? It, it, same thing. At a higher level, what you're talking about is conceptual dependency mapping is what I would call it. And the ability to read the people like you learn from being a salesperson, you put that into the realm of meeting the learner or the person who needs to do the thing, whether it's throw a kick or write some code or build an ERP system, meet them where they are, help fill those gaps in the concepts that they do and do not understand. That's what I heard. 100%. So back to the, the actual training role, it feels like that there's all this iceberg under the water that, that made you effective maybe at that job. Getting the job was you had all these skills and all this background in, in different areas that you were, you were bringing to bear and you were networking with people who were already in the role who could maybe vouch for you and say, oh yeah, so I've seen Larry do this and I've seen Larry do this. I think that that would project well into this role. That's still no guarantee, right? Then once you're in the role, you had all this, like I said, experience that you could bring to bear to, as, as Nick pointed out, like kind of understand where the person was, understand the gaps between where they were and where they needed to be for this specific uh, training and fill in those gaps. I, I mean, sometimes in a, in a classroom setting, it's a little bit difficult. You, you can't teach to the lowest common denominator, but you want to understand kind of making sure that the largest number of people in the class have the, the best baseline um, coming in and then moving up. Am I anywhere near the mark? No, you're, you're, you're spot on. And it, it was kind of interesting, though, because at TI, they have a culture of ongoing learning. So you have to take so many classes per year to continue to maintain uh, your requirements for your, your year over your raises, that sort of thing. And depending on your tenure with TI, you had to get, I think it was, if you'd been there over 20 years, you only needed 40 hours a year. And if you were under, under that, you had to have 80 hours a year. But it was the same classes every year. Very rarely would we introduce a new class. But you have to look at it, too, because you'd still have some new people that come in. So although some of your old timers, some of your gold badgers, that's what they call it at TI, because after you're there, I think 20 years, your badge gets is gold. You get your gold badgers in there. They've been through the cycle time class 20, 20 times, and they're just like they're just dead in the water. You know, They are just there fulfilling this requirement. They don't want to participate. And that was one of the biggest challenges in that environment. 
was taking like your gold badgers that had already seen this material so many times and keeping them engaged and keeping them interested and preventing them from distracting the newer students over here that hadn't been through this class and being able to communicate with them and being able to communicate with this other group of people and bring them all together in a cohesive classroom environment so that everybody benefits from the time together. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges that I had. Well, I took it as a challenge, but I made sure that everybody enjoyed being there and ideally took some sort of value away from their attendance in that classroom. And I think that mentality and that approach to, I don't know, I, I don't know a technical term for it, uh, but I'll call it equalized learning or equalized engagement. And I just made that up. It's probably not a real term, but trying to maintain that level of equality and accessibility of the content that I was teaching was the biggest challenge. And I loved it. And I typically had a really good time, the vast majority of the time, because as a uh, facilitator, as a trainer at TI, every class gets rated. So you have to have a, an audit at the end of the class and every student gives you your marks. And typically my marks were pretty high. And I think it was because I was invested in making sure that everybody not only enjoyed the, the forced time that they had to be there, but they walked away with some little value element as well. I think we would just call that community building. Yeah, hundred percent. But yeah, that's a great description of the equalization of skills and getting people to help each other, trying to add value to everybody in the room. I mean, we should probably be doing that in meetings we're in. Are we even mindful of, of trying to have a, some kind of valuable influence on the people we're meeting with, regardless of whether it's one or 50? That's a great lesson. I, I can honestly say that at the end of my corporate career, um, that was definitely not my mentality. My mentality was not very productive. <laughs> I wasn't quite clear whether you stayed with uh, TI when you moved down to the the Dallas suburbs. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I actually leveraged the position at TI mm -hmm. to acquire another position down in the Dallas suburbs. And it was kind of funny because I applied at this company seven different times. I won't say I applied. I followed up seven different times. I applied once, but they'd call me down from Sherman to Coppell, which is about an hour and 15 minute drive from, from back home. And some of the quote unquote interviews that I had were literally the HR guy coming downstairs Going, hey, thanks for coming out. We haven't made a decision yet. We'll be in touch. And then I turn around and walk. I didn't even get to his office. It took seven times. And the sixth, after the sixth time, I was done. I was like, this is just not going to happen. I don't care. I don't want the job. I'm over it. Whatever. And the girl I was dating at the time, she's like, bro, just try it one more time. Just one more time. And I'm like, all right, fine. So I got one more meeting with Bill Buffington, who was the HR director back then. I have no idea where Bill is these days. But I drove down and boom, they made an offer. And I was like, oh, so cool. Okay, cool. So here we go. And yeah, I left TI. I was at TI for about three and a half years. And you pursued the same sort of role in as a trainer at this other company. And that's what led to the ERP power user or implementation specialization you ended up. To a degree. Actually, it was a step up because uh, I had gone from just being a, a trainer, a corporate trainer, into a, a management role. I had six individuals that, that reported to me. They were actually doing the training. So I would develop the curriculum. I had to come in and understand every process in the distribution center, uh, write training manuals, and then implement the training procedures. And then I would essentially train the trainers, and the trainers would go out and train the, the new employees. So when you're someone who has been teaching and developing all this curriculum to help others, and then you suddenly 
have to manage people. Was the managing people something you wanted? Something you felt you needed to do to level up? Or something they asked you to do because of this is just the job we have open? It was something that I wanted to do, or so I thought I wanted to do it, uh, because I felt that getting into a management role would open up more opportunities for me to obviously have a bigger salary down the road. But at the time, I was not prepared to be in a management role whatsoever. So it was a huge learning experience for me. And being recruited to the ERP team was really a bit of a saving grace. I had never been a manager before. And I've always had this, this feeling inside where everybody has to like me. And so I didn't understand leadership at the time. I, I didn't understand being a manager at the time. And my goal was to just be friends with all six people that reported to me. And that was a struggle. There was a big learning curve there. And it was a big adjustment. And, you know, also, too, if I'm being real honest, it was a bit of a power trip. And the old ego may have gotten involved a little bit as well. So it was, uh, I was only in that role for about a year and a half before I got recruited up into the, the IT department. So it, it was interesting to say the least. And if you had to give advice for someone who is seeking, desiring a management role, looking back then and knowing what you know now, what would you tell them to really consider before they take that on? Consider what that role means. Consider what leadership means. Consider what management means. Understand the role thoroughly before you jump there. It's not just a logical progression. You, you don't just work in a position and go, okay, cool, I'm ready to be a manager now, because you're not. Uh, leadership is an entirely different role, and being able to lead from the front in a way, and I was, at the time too, man, because again, think, think back, uh, I'm a hardcore karate guy, I'm a fighter. I was undefeated in the kickboxing ring. I, I, I had a few losses in the MMA arena, but, but kickboxing, I was undefeated, and I just thought I was the cat daddy of all cat daddies. So it was, this is my way. And I was a huge fan of, there's a gentleman, I think he passed away actually, Richard Marcinko, uh, who was a Navy SEAL back in the day. And he was one of the founders of SEAL Team 6, the legendary SEAL Team 6. And man, I was a Richard Marcinko disciple. I had his 10 commandments of spec war on my wall. And I was just hardcore lead, lead, lead. I had no idea what that meant. You know, I read his books. I, I read everything that he put out. Some of it was fiction. Several of them were nonfiction as well, including some leadership books. But I, I, I wasn't. I wasn't a Navy SEAL, and <laughs> I was just an egomaniac. And I was on an ego trip for several years, and that backfired uh, at a level that I, I just really can't communicate just how bad that did backfire. And it was a massive lesson. So going back to the question that you asked. Make sure if you're moving into a management type role that you understand what that role entails and you understand what management means and you understand the role of a leader in that position. It's, it's so interesting. I, so I'm a first time manager right now. And what you said really speaks to me because, you know, I had the skills of the individual contributor and moving into that management role, I realized that it's only about 20 to 30 percent applicable those actual skills. It, the, the skills are important because you need to understand what good looks like and the problems and maybe some of the background. But the other part of it is really people management. It's skills development. It's recruiting. It's all those kinds of things. So, you know, maybe firing somebody. I haven't had to do that. So that part of it is uh, 
it's still foreign to me, but <laughs> I did it once. Yeah. And it was horrible. Hopefully you do you do the work up front to to hire the right people. But I know that that's not, you know, hundred percent possible, you know. Things happen from time to time that have to be addressed. And like I say, that that just was not fun at all. But you're right. And you know, the irony of it, if we look back. At my experience, here I am talking about how uh, how great I am at communication, yet I failed exponentially at communicating with my direct reports. So there's a huge lesson there as well, because I, I didn't rely on the communication skills that I already possessed. I relied on what I thought I had to do in this leadership position. And I'm surprised I didn't get fired, in all honesty, because uh, I had meetings with HR and talking about what the things that we were doing in the warehouse and how we were doing it. And I specifically remember a meeting with my direct report, my manager, and the HR director of this global company. And I sat there because I was trying to implement some new approaches to the way we were communicating with these new hires. Because again, their turnover was through the roof. And I still remember sitting there with the lady that was the HR director and my direct report. And I looked right at my direct report and said, look, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And Somehow I made it out of that meeting alive, and somehow I still had a job after the fact. But after that meeting, uh, my direct report and I, we had a little closed-door session as well. And he goes, look, first off, I just want you to know I saved you because she wanted to terminate you right there on the spot. That was almost your backside. So I was like, well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. And things evolved from there. But that's not an effective way to communicate. That was the ego talking. That was arrogance talking. That was a perception of what management is and fighting for my team is and fighting for the employees is. I wasn't in a position to fight for anybody. I needed to be fighting for me and communicating openly with all stakeholders. And instead, again, the the ego got in the way. There's a parallelism here to where you talked about you didn't understand conceptually what fighting was after becoming a black belt. This is the next iteration of that. Yeah, that's interesting that you pointed that out because I've, I've never drawn that, that, that parallel, but you're, you're right. It's, it's what you think it is. You know, as, as a karate guy, I thought knowing these techniques, oh, yeah, this is great. I'm awesome until I go and get squashed <laughs> time and time again. And same thing with management. Oh, I'm a manager now. I can strut around with my chest out and I have all the answers and you need to listen to me because I'm the manager and you're not. And uh, then I got squashed again. You know, I think that's a consistent theme throughout my 51 years here on this planet is, is my ego tends to get involved and then I get squashed and then I get humbled and then I go, oh, this is the way I was supposed to do that. But I've never taken the easy approach to learning really anything. It's always been the absolutely most difficult way that I can do it. That ERP focus role, someone came and suggested you take it or you pursued it or was it a little bit of both? No, someone actually came to me. It was the, uh, he was the, I don't remember what, I think he was just the director then. Uh, at the time he came down and I'm, I'm pretty confident my direct report went to him. Said, look, I've got this kid. He sucks as a manager, but he's got some skills. He might be able to help you out if you're willing to take him. He's a wild child, but are you open to it? And then Ray came down and we had a discussion. Next thing you knew, I was packing my bags, vacating my office and heading up to my new cube in the IT department. Oh, that's fascinating. So you think that maybe it was a sideways move out of a role where they realized that you were not effective yet, like you didn't have the background for it. Yeah, 100%. That's a very enlightened thing to do. I mean, not everybody, not all companies and all management teams would would think to do that. 
No, and, and and again, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have been there 21 years if it wasn't just an amazing company that genuinely cared for their employees uh, at a level that I've I've never seen. Now, granted, uh, after 21 years, I haven't been to a lot of companies, uh, corporate companies, or TI, and and this one. Uh, so my experience is is fairly limited. But from stories that I've heard of other companies and other employees and people that have had much more uh, experienced and, 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 and been through multiple companies. This company, it was interesting because if you made it, we used to say this all the time, if you make it a year, you're, you're never going anywhere. You're here forever. And it was essentially the case. Very rarely did anybody ever leave the company or was anybody ever terminated. I mean, you really, really, really got to mess up because I did <laughs> for them to let you go. And it's it's just amazing to see it. Even my wife, I mean, she's been there 23 years now. She's still there. I met my wife there. Uh, she started about a year after I did and uh, met her. And we've been together ever since. And she's still there. And she worked her way from customer service representative. Now she's a manager in the accounting department. And she's done a much better job at being a manager than I did. But yeah, it was just an amazing company. And they really, really take care of their people. That's so great to hear that. You don't hear about that longevity a lot of the time these days. Yeah. Yeah. Investment in your people. You went through a lot to hire them and seven interviews. <laughs> That's a lot of mileage. <laughs> it, is, it sure was. Well, I, I mean, I think I, I recognize that now how difficult it is to hire somebody. I mean, that is the time investment right there. And then you put in a bunch of development time. Maybe they realize like, oh, we don't have like a good first time manager program that we, you know, that's what we actually need. And if we're going to, you know, promote people to be first time managers, then we need to, we need to have training for that. I'm fascinated to hear about this transition to more of an IT focused role with uh, the ERP solution. Right. Hate to cut off the discussion we had with Larry there. I want to keep this episode to a reasonable length. And I think that's a really good inflection point. Just wanted to reflect on some points that came up re-listening to this episode. The first is that transferable skills matter. Larry's skills from martial arts and, and sales like really translated to corporate training. It, it really kind of highlights the importance of recognizing and leveraging those transferable skills when you're exploring potential career paths. And it kind of flows into continuous learning too. So that's the second point. Larry's career really demonstrates the value of continuous learning, focusing on your, your skills development. You know, Larry talked about Toastmasters uh, for communication or so, you know, acquiring new knowledge and skills unlocks potential opportunities and opens up a lot of doors in your career. A third point, I would maybe focus on the idea of leadership as a journey. Larry's initial struggles as a manager, he's kind of candid about that, you know, just reminds us that effective leadership kind of requires, you know, going back to that second point, dedication and continuous learning. But the other lessons that 
Larry kind of reflected on were, you know, learning humility, having self-awareness, and, and being an open communicator. That's key to building trust and, and fostering collaboration. Kind of building on that same leadership theme, Larry talked about ego, and, and maybe we could bullet this as ego can be detrimental. So Larry had like a pretty brutally honest <laughs> reflection on, you know, his ego-driven decisions. And that can really hopefully serve as valuable lessons for all of us who are aspiring for leadership. So uh, with that in mind, let's get out of here. Farewell listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at Be Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore signing off. Adios. Adios.